is that we would see God's kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Amen? I, wanna, I want to see all that Jesus paid for, all that he desires and dreams about, and all that he is tirelessly, passionately working for, I want to see that. I want to see Jesus' church as a glorious bride. I want to see the church rising up in victory, shining as light in the midst of darkness. I want to see revival, right? Transforming economic systems and political systems. And I want to see injustices broken. I want to see people set free. I want to see bodies healed. That's the full gospel, amen? That those who believe, signs and wonders would follow those who believe. We want to see the fullness of what Jesus paid for. We want to see the full gospel. And this is really what we've been all about these last number of weeks, months actually. Just understanding the gospel. And, And what have we said This is a brilliant strategy, is it not? I mean, can you think of anything more brilliant than the creator of the universe redeeming all things by invading a broken earth with his perfect heaven, right? Invading the kingdom of darkness with the kingdom of light by God's son becoming a man and teaching us who God is and then dying so that his blood would make us right with God, and so that he could transform the world. It's a brilliant strategy. It's amazing that God gets righteousness on earth by planting a righteousness seed. The kingdom always comes in a seed, always comes in a word, and always then produces fruit. As Deb prayed, that was a good word wherever she went. That God's word will not return void. Because it has the power to do what God said it would do. Look, look at Romans 1, actually. We're gonna, we'll go to Romans 5, don't worry. But Romans chapter 1. Remember what Paul says here? Verse 16. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. That is written, the just shall live by faith. So it's literally the gospel that is the power of God to transform people who believe it, right? Jesus told the story That the gospel is a seed, the one who believes it is the one who receives that seed into their heart. And that bearing of fruit is his righteousness, his salvation transforming our lives and this world. So what what does it look like when the kingdom comes? What did Jesus mean when he said, pray to the Father let your, Father, let your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. What did Jesus have in mind? I'm pretty sure he knew what heaven looked like, right? Yeah? You think so? He, right? He's from heaven, right? Do you think there's any dysfunctional relationships in heaven? Right? Do you think for all eternity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are enjoying each other in perfect unity? Do you think there's any depression or sickness in heaven? No. Well, how do we know that? Read Revelation, you know, the end. Read the beginning part. No, I'm joking. (laughs) 
It's just a battle to get there. But Jesus knew exactly what it looked like for heaven to invade earth, for his kingdom to come. And this is what he talked. This is what he taught. This is what he taught us how to live. You see, the reality is, is that because you and I are a new creation, the Spirit of God is inside of us. If you've put your trust in him, right, and you are in Christ, you're a new creation. The Bible says the old has passed away. The new has come. That means that his kingdom is already breaking in in you and me. We are the inbreaking of his kingdom. We are the beachhead of his invasion, right? We are the gateway for his glory to invade this world because he has already established his kingdom in us, right? Where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom, right? Where the spirit is, there's freedom. The kingdom of God is righteousness, joy, and peace in the Holy Spirit. Why? Because where the Spirit is, that's where the kingdom is. The Holy Spirit establishes Jesus' kingdom and dominion. And wherever he is, there is freedom, there is peace, there is joy, there's righteousness. And this is what I want us to kind of, not kind of, I want us to begin to focus on as a church. To say, what would it look like for what we've been talking about? God's love and the truth of the gospel to transform the way we relate to one another. To transform our emotions, to transform the way we live. What would it look like for us to be, as Paul said, weapons of righteousness? Literally, now that you have been made right in Christ, you are a weapon of his righteousness to this world. Salt and light in this world. Amen? That's who we are as his church. So look, look here in Romans chapter 5. just want to focus in on a particular truth here. Romans chapter 5, verse 1. This is Paul talking about the gospel here. He says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith... You have peace with God. That's powerful, isn't it? Have we been learning this? That because of the blood of Jesus, that free gift of salvation, literally to be made completely right with God, sin washed, made right with God completely, he never remembers our sin. And Paul is saying that because you've been made right with God and because the, 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 the blood of Jesus has washed you completely clean, there is no sin in you. You're righteous. Because of that, you have peace with God. You have peace with God. See, just, a, just a, like a few chapters before in Romans 1, 17, he said that the wrath of God is upon all, all ungodliness. Before we were Christ followers, we were called objects of wrath. Because of our sin, because of the righteous judgment of God against sin, we were, literally had the wrath of God on us. And yet, and yet I've, I've showed you that despite all of that, yet God still loved us and wanted us. Amen? Look, look at what it says in Romans 5. He, he goes on. We'll just go to verse 6 here. We could read the whole thing, but... Verse 6, for when we were still without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. Who did he die for? Ungodly. Without God. Godless. 
It says, for scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone even dared to die. You know, like you like somebody and they're a good person, you might risk your life for them. But verse 8, but God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't, do you think like anyone like, hey God, I mean, could you just, could you just like, let up a little bit on human beings, you know? Like, we're not all that perfect. Could you just let up a little bit? And, like, maybe you could, like, do something to, like, help us out. Do you think anyone ever asked God to do something? Do you think anyone, like, counseled God to bring salvation? Who came up with this idea anyways, right? Who, what, you, know, you know, hey, you know not be a really good idea, God, to fix this world? Is if you... Right? Nobody! Nobody! The Bible calls... Our salvation, God's eternal plan that he's accomplished in Christ Jesus. The Bible says that he chose us before the creation of the world, before we ever blew it. He already knew it. I mean, people, silly people go, oh, that means he caused it. No, he didn't cause it. He just loved you so much that even though he knew that we were going to sin, he still chose to love us, still chose to create us, knowing that he would sacrifice his only son for us. This is his plan. This is his choice. This is his will. Nobody can credit for it, right? It's totally the grace of God. The cross proves, demonstrates, shows us how much God loves us. I don't know. Some people, some people picture God as like this like mean, like vindictive judge, and like Jesus is going like, no, no, don't hurt them. You know what I'm saying? I'll die for them. Just don't kill them. You know? You know, it's like a picture of um. And almost people, we, we, these illustrations are out there in the church. People do skits about these things, you know. Like we're standing in the court of law. We're the sinner. And, and the judge is there. Just destroy us. And then in comes Jesus. No, I have died for them. You know, it's usually one of those corny skits anyways. And we think, yay, that's such a good illustration because Jesus has saved us from this mean God, you know. No, that's just not how it works. I think the best uh, courtroom illustration I've ever heard in terms of being justified is that, is that imagine this, this young man, you know, had, you know, 100 speeding tickets, you know, exhibition and parking tickets and all stuff, and he finally gets caught, and he finally gets dragged into the courtroom, and he's just dragged into the, you know, I mean, he was arrested, and then he comes before the, the judge for sentencing and all that. And imagine he's just getting, you know, pulled, pulled into the courtroom, and he looks in, and he's just got this you know, smug, is that the right word? You know, just look on his face like, yeah, you know, whatever, you know, not, not repentant in any way. And, and, uh, and the judge looks at the man and the young man and the judge looks at the, the, uh, the record and he says, guilty, guilty as charged, full penalty, full time in jail, Full, full, full fine that he needs to pay or the community service, whatever they do. And there's full penalty. And the young man's like, what? I can't believe this, right? And then the judge says, court adjourned, stands up, walks out from the, from the, uh, from the uh, judge's bench, takes off his robe and gets out his checkbook and pays the fine. Because the judge was not only the judge, but the father of this rebellious kid. The Bible says it's his kindness that leads to repentance. See, the same God who is righteous and just and never compromises his righteousness is the same God 
who bore his own punishment, right? Jesus became a man, took our sin upon himself, and his, God's own just righteous wrath upon himself to make us right with God. That's why Romans 3, if you just backed up a couple chapters, it says, for God, the, 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 the cross reveals the righteousness of God. Not just his love, but his righteousness, in that he's both just and the justifier of those who put their trust in Jesus. And so not only, not only is this God righteous, but he loves us, and the cross proves, and this is what I've tried to show you, that, 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 that yeah, even when I was not saved, even when you weren't saved, and, and the wrath of God was on us, yet he still loved us, amen? And he demonstrates that he's merciful, that even when we were dead in our sins, God showed mercy because of his what? Great love. That's what was motivating him to do this because of his love for us, his desire for us. We've been talking about this for months. But notice what it says here. It's very significant in verse one. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. We've been reconciled to God. It means something's changed in our relationship. He didn't change, but we changed. We were enemies. And now we're friends. We're on his side. If you look just a few verses down in verse 10. For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more. That means like, dude, if he like loved us when we were sinners and he gave his son as a sacrifice so that we could be made right with God when we were enemies, dude, how much more this other reality And he says, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. I miss verse verse 9, where he says this, much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. See, you got to kind of put yourself in the shoes of the people who are hearing this for the first time. See, back in those days, if you were Jewish, you were raised with a concept that God has rejected sinners. Think about what you know about the Pharisees, those of you who know about the religious teachers in Jesus' day, right? They literally taught people. Their stated doctrine is that God rejects sinners, turns his back on them, And Jesus steps in and says, dude, you guys have missed it. These are people who understood the Old Testament. But they, I'm sorry, they they knew the Old Testament, but they misunderstood, they misinterpreted the Old Testament. I mean, tell you, you can read the Old Testament, you can read the whole Bible, and if you do not understand the revelation of the glory of God in Christ, in the cross, you will misinterpret. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You read the Old Testament stories, you can come to me and say, what about this, like, dude, like, G- like God in the Old Testament, like, whooped on these people. Yeah. I mean, look at Job, you know, all the, what's going on in Job and everything. And if you do not read the Old Testament, you don't read, like, the prophecies. Oh, Dave, I mean, I'm telling you, you talk about God's love, but I've read those prophets. If you don't read those things through a lens of the cross, The revelation of who God is revealed in Christ. Remember we've said that the cross, the definitive statement of God's love. That Christ is the perfect revelation of God. 
If you do not read the Bible through that Christological lens, you will misinterpret it. This is what people do all the time. They take the story out of context, right? It's like they take one clip from the beginning or the middle of the movie and they twist the story. You cannot understand what's going on in redemption and who God is if you don't understand the cross. The cross tells you he's righteous. The cross tells you he's merciful, right? And so these Jewish people, these religious leaders, they had totally warped the character of God in their mindset, right? And they're thinking that God is rejecting sinners and they lived in this fear and this anxiety and they created rules, rules so they didn't break rules, right? It was like rules upon rules upon rules and they lived with this anxiety and they lived with this, you can't have anything wrong with you because then God will be mad at you and he'll judge you. You'll be outside of the favor of God. So guess what you do? What do you do when you can't have any problems on the inside of you? You hide them, right? And you hide them by acting like you're perfect to the point where Jesus called these religious leaders white-washed tombs. They paint them on the outside and on the inside dead men's bones, meaning that they were completely impure and unclean, the very thing that they were acting like they weren't. They come up with all these rules on the outside, and, but yet death is on the inside of them. Why? Because they had to make themselves look like they had it all together, right? Pray outside where everybody could see them, you know, right? Fast and make yourself, oh, I'm so holy because I'm fasting and I'm just really hungry, right? And all this outward stuff to try to show them, show people that they've got it all together because that'll make them, that will try to placate their own sense of just guilt and shame and things like that, right? You also had Gentiles, non-Jews, and they believed that there were tons of gods, tons of gods. There was a God for everything. And they believed that the gods on their good days were just whatever, right? No desire or care or concern for human beings. And on a bad day, were mad. And they believed, I'm telling you, the, the emotional... temperature of that culture when the Bible was written was fear and anxiety. Man, you, you had to do all this stuff to try to make the gods see you and like you. Make sure they're not mad. I mean, shoot, you know, anything goes wrong and it's because it's the gods are mad. Right? You get sick, you lose, your, you lose something, some relational you know, problem, or whatever, a business issue. You had, and so you had to go to all these patron gods, became patron saints later, and uh, you had to go to all these gods and try to get their favor. You had to you know, try to sacrifice and do this and do that. And, and, if, you, and if, you were, if, you, if you did anything wrong or you know, anything of outside of ritual purity that that culture said was, was, was impure, that, man, you're out of the favor of the God. Right? You go to Thailand today and, and, and you see spirit houses all over Thailand. Why? Because they're still an animistic culture. That means the belief in lots of spirits and demons and gods that are mad, that are grumpy, and you have to like appease them and get their attention. And, and if this God's mad at you, you've got to like get this God's attention so then that God will help you with that God. And it's just craziness. And the dominant feeling in these kinds of culture is insecurity, fear. 
It's exactly what people live with in animistic cultures, and it's exactly what people live with when they believe the lie of religion, yeah? And yet in the midst of that, Paul steps in and preaches the gospel, amen? Every religion in this world is do, do, do what we got to do to get to God. And yet the gospel is God's story, not man's story. It's not religion. It's not humanistic philosophy. It is the revelation of who God really is and what God has done, right? Accomplished, finished, and that God paid the price for our sin and made us right with him. And therefore, since you are justified by faith, you have peace with God. He's not angry anymore. There's no more wrath. Shoot. Even when you were a sinner, he liked you and wanted you and desired you. That's why he gave his son for you. But now that you're in Christ, justified, just as if you'd never sinned, righteous in Christ, now the Father sees you like he sees Christ, loves you like he loves Christ, relates to you like he relates to Christ. You're in Christ. Amen? See, now the Father has a human being, right? Jesus is God who became a human being. Jesus, the Father has a human being on earth that he can relate to perfectly. Jesus never sinned, and now he's resurrected in a glorified body. And now the Father has a human being that the Father can relate to a human being perfectly. And you are in Christ. What is true of Jesus is true of you. There's no sin in him. There's no sin in you. God is at peace with Jesus. He's at peace with you. There's no anger. I don't even know why people think God's an angry God. God made it really clear in Exodus 34. I am gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, rich in love and faithfulness. See, it's demonic lies. It's demonically inspired religion. It's our own interpretation of the brokenness of this world. Sickness, disease, catastrophes, demons that has caused us to interpret that God is just like this capricious, angry, just get mad at anything kind of God. If you've ever lived in a home with somebody who's angry and you don't really know if they're going to be angry with you when you come home or when they come home or not, because it really has nothing to do with you but their own moods, you live in an insecurity and, 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 and anger communicates there's something wrong with me. Now, if I sin and you discipline me, there's something wrong with my behavior. But if you get angry, your anger doesn't match my behavior. Your anger is more than what my behavior should be. Or you live in a home where you're not really sure what's going to happen. You grow up with all this kind of insecurity. And that's basically what's happened in, in our world, not just in homes. The homes, that's just a manifestation of what's going on inside of us. Because we believe God, or the, many people in this world believe the God's, they're not, there are not multiple gods, but they believe that the gods or God is angry. God said, I'm slow to get angry. What does that mean? It means that I only get angry when you do something that's sinful. <laughs> when you provoke my jealous anger. When you cross lines that are not supposed to be crossed. It's appropriate for me to get mad at my son or my daughter if they rebel or hurt someone else. It's appropriate for me to be angry at that and no. 
It would actually be inappropriate. It's actually really broken in our culture, isn't it? When people don't get angry at sin. It would be, it would be actually wrong. <clears throat> and yet now in Christ, he sees you as he sees Christ. You have peace with God. He's not angry. Look at, uh, go, I want you to stay in Romans, but go back to Isaiah 53, kind of near the middle of the Bible. Isaiah 53. And most of Romans, especially Romans 5 and 8 and some of these passages are literally based upon Isaiah 53 and 54. Right? Paul is, loves these chapters and is... And is, and, is, and is basically applying these chapters, Isaiah 53 and 54, written hundreds of years before Jesus was even born. And he's applying these truths that are in Isaiah 53, 54, uh, and other parts of Isaiah to these Christians there in Rome. Just like I'm doing to you. Declaring to you that God is not angry. You're not under the wrath of God. You have peace with God. And his justice has been satisfied. You don't have to fear the anger of the gods. And you don't have to fear the anger of God. Let's see, look at Isaiah 53. In, um, it's clearly uh, talking about the cross. In verse 10. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. Uh, and, he, and he has put him to grief. When, when you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days. And the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. This, this passage, Isaiah 53, the whole chapter is about a substitutionary sacrifice. He takes our death. He takes our sickness. He takes our disease. He takes our rejection. He takes our pain on himself, and he deals with it. I mean, you can literally see here that, that the father is crushing this, this servant, Jesus, saying that his, he makes his soul an offering for sin. Literally, a guilt offering to take our place for what we deserve, right? This is a substitutionary sacrifice. And yet, here in verse 11, he shall see the labor of his soul. Clearly a prophecy of the resurrection. I mean, you go a couple verses earlier, it's a clear description of crucifixion, and crucifixion hadn't even been invented yet. This is hundreds of years. And this is actually one of the chapters that really started to open my eyes to Jesus being for real. It's not when I got saved, but I was like, dude, that's pretty hardcore. It's pretty detailed, hundreds of years before Jesus. And it literally says in verse 11 that he will justify many, right? So, so you got this? Chapter 53 is Jesus dying for us and rising again and by his own blood purchasing us and making us right with God, right? You got that? Justify, verse 11, right? Okay, now jump over to 54. The whole chapter 54 is like amazing, but I just want to highlight one particular dynamic here. Verse 5. For your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name, and your redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. He is called the God of the whole earth. For the Lord has called you like a woman forsaken and grieved in spirit, like a youthful wife when you were refused, says your God. For a mere moment I have forsaken you, but with great mercies I will gather you. With a little wrath I hid my face from you for a moment, but with everlasting kindness I will have mercy on you, says the Lord your redeemer. For this, pay attention, for this is like the waters of Noah to me. For as I have sworn that the waters of Noah would no longer cover the earth, so I have sworn that I would not be angry at you, nor rebuke you, 
For the mountains shall depart and the hills be removed, but my kindness shall not depart from you, nor shall my covenant of peace be removed, says the Lord who has mercy on you. Isaiah 54 is the result of the cross. This is our, part of our inheritance, right? This is our inheritance. Therefore, since you have been justified by faith, you have peace with God. Well, what does that mean? God says it right here in Isaiah 54. Paul was expressing the truth of Isaiah 54 that flowed out of Isaiah 53. Justified, Isaiah 53. God is satisfied, it said. Jesus is satisfied, Isaiah 53. And then here, he declares over the church, because this is fulfilled in the cross, he declares over the church that I am your redeemer, I am your husband. And he says, I'm going to bring you to myself in great mercies. Notice that he says, yes, there was wrath in verse 8, but with everlasting kindness, I'll have mercy on you. How long is everlasting? Right? What is God saying? A kindness that will never, ever be removed. A mercy that never, ever ends. And just to make sure that God is really clear, and just to make sure you and I understand how serious God is and how much he has accomplished, do you notice that he compares? He compares the new covenant with the covenant he made with Noah. All right, we have a new and everlasting covenant because of the blood of Jesus. Right, that's what we celebrate in communion. The new and everlasting covenant in his blood, the forgiveness of sins, right? So what did you get in this new and everlasting covenant now that he has forgiven your sins by his blood? Well, you get a lot of stuff. But right here he says, just like I swore that I would never cover the earth with waters. Just like that. So I am sworn that I will never be angry with you. Right? God flooded the earth. And then afterwards he said, I'll never flood the earth. I'll never destroy the earth with a flood again. And he put a rainbow in the sky as a sign. And that rainbow forever is a reminder that God is faithful. That his covenant love and faithfulness never change. And then he says, just like I made that promise back then to never flood the earth. He says, because of the blood of Jesus, I've made a covenant, a new covenant, and I swear to you, I will never be angry with you. We looked at it last week that God will correct us for sin as a father does to a son or a daughter that he loves, but he'll never reject, he'll never cast us away, he'll never leave us nor forsake us. His favor will never depart from us. It means God has made promises to you. He's given you an inheritance because you're his son or his daughter in Christ. And he'll never take those promises or his favor or his presence away from you. He swore this and then proved it with his own blood. The blood is the sealing of the promise. Notice that he compares those two covenants. And so every time 
Actually, he keeps going. He says, for the mountains shall depart and the hills be removed, but my kindness shall never depart from you or not depart from you, nor shall my covenant, listen, do you hear that? Covenant of peace. What kind of covenant do you have with God? A new covenant. What kind of covenant is it? Covenant of what? Peace. Friendship. That God is for you, not against you. That now he has reconciled you himself and you are a friend of God. Not by anything you've ever done, just by the grace of God. Amen? A covenant of peace. And you notice that he says he'll never remove it. In Jeremiah 31, he actually says this in reference to the new and everlasting covenant. He says, you would have to break my covenant with the sun or the moon for you to break my covenant with you. The sun would have to cease to rise. I mean, creation would have to literally unravel and fall apart for God to break his covenant with you. He is a covenant-making God, right? He wasn't like, oh, Adam and Eve, you really blew it. I'm, I'm out of here. I'm making a new earth. Why do you think he has been in this for thousands of years? Because when we sinned against him, there's consequences to sin. And redemption had to be uh, 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 worked out only by blood, right? You can only redeem by blood. God set the whole thing in motion. And yet he never abandoned creation. He has never rejected you. And you say, you say, oh, I mean, what? you say, oh, well, you know, look at the bad things that happen in the world and look at the stuff going on in my life and blah, blah, blah. And you go, no, look at the cross. The cross is the definitive statement of God's love for you and what he has for you. <clears throat> I, um, I remember when the Lord told me uh, years ago, he said, uh, he said, you fear other people's rejection because you fear my rejection. And I told God he was crazy. It's kind of funny arguing with God, right? I, I, didn't, I didn't even understand what he meant. You know what I'm saying? I didn't even, I didn't even know that I feared people's rejection let alone God's reaction. No, no, I know you love me, you know. See, we don't, we, don't, we don't connect the dots, do we? We think like, you know, God's over here, my relationship with God's over here, and my relationship with my spouse is over here, my emotional stability is over here, right? So because we don't connect the dots, we don't, we don't understand the kingdom, really. We don't understand how God invades earth with heaven. We don't understand God's brilliant strategy to transform our lives. So what do we do? We look to other things when we have problems, don't we? Right? right. What does your marriage need? Oh, uh, no, no, it needs the gospel. Amen? Dave, I'm going through this, I'm going through that, I'm going through this, you know, I need, I need this, I need that. You need the gospel. See, I didn't realize I had this like deep fear of rejection, you know? I didn't realize, I mean, I grew up basically never really feeling like I amounted, like I, uh, I don't know if that's the right word, like that I never, I never w- was enough, right? A deep fear that I would fail, especially as I got older, you know, as a man you begin to face, you know, can I, do I have what it takes? I never felt like I had what it took, but I didn't feel that, that I was, was enjoyed or delighted in or pleasing to someone. You know, and this isn't necessarily the fault of my parents, right? This is a deep brokenness on the inside of us. Now, sometimes parents can like actually feed that out of their own brokenness. 
But I'm just saying that it didn't matter how much my dad told me he was proud of me. I didn't believe it. That's just the reality. I, it, I didn't. I, it, and so because of that, it would cause me to uh, uh, try... Uh, well, like I said, religiously, you have to act like you all together. How can you really be honest with yourself or with God or with anyone if you have to act like you have it all together so that either people will like you or that you won't have to face your own weaknesses or God won't know or something like that? Isn't it funny how we do things like that, right? We argue with God, we hide from God, like what's, what's the point, right? Um, but not only that is I never felt connected to people. I would have these dreams before I was saved, and of course this is because I was not saved, I would have these dreams of like being miles away from a destination and never having the ability to get there. It's the weirdest dream and the most frustrating. Like this, like this, like this endless pursuit after something I could never attain. Oh my goodness, the sense of emptiness, right? The moment I got saved, I was like, yay, Jesus loves me. You know what I'm saying? Like this was a good thing. So there was a, that dream never happened after I got saved because I was reconciled to the Father and I encountered this God who loves me and understands me. So I had the initial revelation. But remember, we've talked about this. The kingdom comes like a seed. But that doesn't mean you have the fruit. Just because you know a truth doesn't mean that it's transformed you completely or transformed your emotions. So, man, I had so many issues. And after four or five years of being a Christian, see, if I shoot an arrow at a target that's one foot in front of me, I can hit that bullseye pretty quick, right? That's kind of easy. I'll just take it and just like shove it in the bullseye. You know, <laughs> I am good, you know? That's how people do it. Yeah, that's, how, that's, that's why people play video games, right? So, um, oh, shut up. That was bad. So, actually, I, I'm not good at video games anyway, so uh, I should play. I, that's why I play Super Mario Brothers. I can be good at that. Uh, and, uh, but, uh, but what happens when you start backing up? You back up further and further and further and further. If you're 1% off the mark, Sooner, the further you go back, the further you'll miss the bullseye, right? So the more that I continued on in my Christianity with a faulty foundation of lies that I believed about God because of lies I believed about other people and things like that, the more it began to affect me. But like I said, we don't connect the dots, do we? We just don't think one, we don't think it's relevant to what we're going through. And so uh, I remember actually, like literally saying, I don't trust people. I, I, would, I would be in, in a crowd. This is after I got saved. I still had issues, right? Uh, I'd be in a crowd of people. Some of you probably felt like this before. Some of you aren't like me, but crowd of people with friends and feel completely alone, completely disconnected. And so it would cause me to be super defensive, right? Somebody was judging me or trying to correct me. I'd be super defensive, um, judge other people, right? Base my own spirituality based on my actions and then base their spirituality on their actions, right? It would cause me to be argumentative and defensive. All of that rooted in the fear of rejection. No, 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 God, no, this is not, that's not the case. Come on. No, no, I, don't, I, don't, I, don't fear, I don't know even what you're talking about. That's what my conversation with God sounded like. He's like, no, you don't understand. You do those things because you're broken on the inside. Right? This goes all the way back to the fall. See, we think sin is just, you know, I did something wrong. Or we think, you know, sin is the rebelling against God, which it is. 
But you've got to remember that Adam and Eve sinned against God because they believed a lie about God, right? So the enemy got them to believe a lie about God, and based on that lie, they rebelled against God. And what is the first thing that happens when they sin? They feel shame. Then they hide from God because why? They're afraid of his anger. And he wasn't. Read Genesis. He's, come, he's all walking in the garden. Hey, where are you guys at? Just want to hang out. We're hiding because we're afraid. What? Who changed? Our own rebellion poisons us. Sin is death. Our own rebellion poisons us to continue to believe the lie that we believe that causes us to sin. Does it make sense? We believed a lie from the devil, so then when we rebelled against God, we obeyed the devil, and so we aligned with his kingdom. And so you get that God. When you, when you, when you rebel against God, you get that God, the God that the devil caused you to believe in you, you, you follow with me so all religion is rooted in this lie that god or the gods have rejected us and are angry and we have to appease them all religion it is a demonic teaching and it is not the gospel all that fatalism all that stuff all that trying to all magic that's what magic is that's what magic is. You gotta like manipulate the spirits. That's what it is. See, we don't really know that because we're Westerners, but that, that's what witchcraft and magic is. It's all rooted in this lie. So what did he do? He has to heal and free us from the lie that God's not that God you rebelled against, anyways. And by the blood of Jesus, he's reconciled us. And through the gospel, he's communicated to us the truth. That Jesus says, the father's a good father. He's been looking for you. When you come home, he rejoices. And he's made promises to you. And his favor's on you. And he's not angry anymore. You have peace with God. And so God would take me to these scriptures. He would take me to these truths. And he would say, see That's not who I am. This is who I am. And he would begin to heal me at the root. Why try to cut away dead leaves or cut away dead fruit when the problem is the root? Right? Just heal the root. Why spend all of our time worrying about anxiety? Isn't that funny? Worrying about worry? Or struggling with sin. Or trying to get free from depression. When the whole root problem is the lie that we believed. The fear of God's rejection of us. And Jesus has already solved that problem. It's just, the Lord said, stop it. Just me. Focus on who I am. Let me transform you by the renewing of your mind. See, your feelings... Uh, and Sean talked about this emotional wholeness. All they are is a byproduct of what you think. All they are are, are the fruit of what you believe. So if you, if you live with anxiety, 
Anxiety is that like weird emotion that nobody really knows how to define. It, it just means you're afraid of some unnamed thing in the future, like failure or rejection. It could be financial, it could be whatever. It's relational. This is what causes people to get into dysfunctional relationships. I mean, it's amazing how people will stay in relationships where they're being hurt or abused because they're afraid of rejection. I'll take that. I'll take the bad because I just don't want to be alone, right? What I'm saying is it manifests. It could be shame. Shame is where you just feel dirty and yucky. There's something wrong with me. Oftentimes people who have been sinned against feel shame. They feel there's something wrong with them. And it wasn't you. It was the person who hurt you, right? And then some of it was just shame and guilt and condemnation because of the sin in our, in our past and things like that. Fears of rejection that have to do with relationships or feel of failure that has to do with our calling or our purpose. I mean, whatever it is, it all comes down to the same root issue. He's not angry. He's never going to reject you. You can't fail him. His love is unfailing. He'll never leave you nor forsake you. He's for you and not against you. You have peace with God. You're justified. You're right with God. You're reconciled. You're a friend of God. It all comes back to this gospel. And this is what will heal our hearts. Because, think about it, if there's no anger in his heart, then why are you afraid of anger? And if you have peace with God, then why are you afraid he's going to reject you? If there's no wrath in heaven, then why is there fear of it in us? Let it be on earth as it is in heaven. If there's joy and peace in heaven, then let it be on earth as is in heaven. If there's joy and peace in the heart of God, if he's delighting in you and enjoying you and dancing over you with singing, like it says in Zephaniah 3, if he's for you, then let it be on earth in my heart as it is in heaven. If there's peace in the heart of God, then let it be on earth as in heaven. There's no anxiety. There's no depression in heaven. There's no depression or anxiety or fear or anger in his heart. It doesn't need to reside in us. It's not from the Lord. Does that make sense? Because you have peace with God, you can have peace on the inside of you. Does that make sense? It is exactly because of your relationship with God that you can then relate to God that way and experience that wholeness on the inside. You don't have to look anywhere else than the gospel. You don't. You don't have to self-analyze. You don't have to like explore your past, who did it to me, who hurt me. It might be good to identify, you know, you look at the x-ray and then the cure can cure the thing that's hurt, but you don't need to do that. What you need is a revelation of God in Christ. And you stay fixed there. See, because when you realize this truth, well, geez, this is what causes you to be confident, Right? This is what causes you to be able to resist temptation, to resist persecution. I'm telling you, right here. You heard it here first. No, I'm joking. It wasn't me first. Somebody said to me one time, man, I just don't feel like we're preparing the church for the end times. And um, I said, I am. He said, but Dave, you know, you don't really talk about the end times. Yeah, yeah, I know. And you don't talk about like martyrdom very much. I go, yeah, I know, we will. But... Um, I said, uh, 
I said, I'm not being arrogant. What I mean is, I know the only thing that will cause the church to remain steadfast against a godless culture or against a wicked culture that is persecuting the church. It's only the love of God. That's it. I know that. So I know that we're doing exactly what is the only thing to prepare people. You want to have strength against temptation? That's it. The gospel. Focus on the love of God. You're like, oh, I don't know. I think I would deny Jesus if someone put a gun up to my head. Don't worry about it. Just focus on God's love. Because you'll become so convinced that you're like, <laughs> yeah, just shoot me. Like, what are you doing? What are you doing? He loves me. I'm going I'm to reign. Like, I get a kingdom. Go ahead. You know, I probably get a better one if you shoot me. You know, like you just, yeah, you, you just get a little crazy. You know, you just, yeah, he likes me. You can say whatever you want. You, you don't have to be defensive anymore. Somebody's like, oh, you're horrible. You're like, well, he likes me. You know, I mean, this, this, it all, it's all right here because when you understand that God's not angry with you, that you have peace with God, that the root issue heals your emotions. And, and this is what's going to transform our relationships. <clears throat> Let me end with a prayer that um, Psalm 16 that I would often pray. See, years ago, the Lord just told me to focus on who he is, right? I would, I would take these scriptures and meditate the promises of God and the truth of God for my life. I would, pr- I would meditate on scriptures about like humility and things like that, that were characters used in my life. I'd let the, the sword of God's word cut me. But I would just focus on Jesus like we've been talking about, just focus on who he is. And I would pray these kinds of psalms. This and a couple other psalms. I, was, I called it my prayer experiment. I called it that because I didn't really have much hope. Like I really wanted to know, honestly, I really wanted to know, can the gospel actually change me at the core of my being? Is this just like you follow some principles, like nice wisdom or rules, and like you outwardly look different, but you're not really different? Like, could this really change me in the core, core of my being? I would feel different. I would talk different. I would actually respond differently to other people. I would relate differently. You know what I'm saying? Like when Jesus says, turn the other cheek, like you'd actually turn the other cheek and want to, you know? Not like turn the other cheek and be like, yeah, but I wish they were dead, you know? Which is where most of us, right? Like we, we're like, well, I did the turn the other cheek thing, you know? Like, could, no, 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 I mean, like, really change. This is what, I really wanted to know this. I didn't believe, really. I, I had hope. I called it a fool's hope. And so I decided, I thought, well, this is either true or it's not, right? I, I didn't actually realize that I was doing certain things that were biblical principles that I teach now. I just was like, says it in the Word. And I believed that these truths that God was showing me, and like this psalm, for example, this and many other psalms like it, were literally like keys to unlock my heart into this. This is King David, who understood the heart of God, man after God's own heart, literally struggling with the same insecurities and fears we are, and yet 
He just didn't give room to it. He wasn't like, I'm this horrible person. I'm not a bread. People just think David was just some whiny, you know, weeping guy. No, no, like, yeah, he was totally raw and honest before God, but he understood how to declare the truth of God over his heart. So I'm sure he, you know, maybe he'd cry and do it. I mean, whatever. I mean, but I just mean like he, so I just was like, well, I'm just, I'm going to do what David did, you know? I'm going to pray the prayers that Paul prayed. I'm just going to stand on the truth. And I figure it was, or it's not, you know? But I was like done striving. I was done trying to like change myself. I was done with that. And I really called it like my prayer experiment because I was like, well, either Jesus will change me or this is just all, you know, nice like ideas, you know? And um, I'm a completely different person now in the core of my being. And it happened because he healed that root issue. And so Psalm 16, we'll end with this. Verse 5. O Lord, you are my portion, the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You maintain my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Yes, I have a good inheritance. I will bless the Lord who has given me counsel. My heart also instructs me in the night seasons. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be moved. Listen. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will rest in hope. For you will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You will show me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. See, this is reality. That God feels peace towards you and relates to you based on his covenant of peace that he made with Jesus? That's reality. How you feel and how you perceive things is not. And King David, he would sing what is reality. That I stand before the throne of God faultless and blameless. That he is my goodness and my righteousness because the Lord is at my right hand. God's with me. He's on my side. I will not be shaken. I mean, dude, the dude had like guys chasing him, trying to kill him. He's like, no, I will not be shaken. I'm going to be emotionally rooted and grounded in love of God, secure and confident. Shoot, you could surround me with an army. I'm still going to be confident. The guy's either lying or he found out something that we don't know. Really, when you believe that God is on your side and he's made a covenant with you and he's with you, it changes everything. It changes the game. You know what I'm saying? Changes the game. You can't lose. And he literally says that this truth, verse 9, this is what makes me glad. That I can't be shaken. This is what fills my heart with joy. And this is what causes me to physically rest. David could sleep even though people were hunting for his life. He could lay down. He would say that. He said, my sleep peaceful. I can sleep. Jesus slept in the midst of a storm, right? David could sleep because God was with him. He knew. He knew. Dude, this cave isn't my protection. God is my refuge. God made a promise to me that I'll be king. This dude can't kill me. He understood something greater. That's why he said in Psalm 23, I won't fear evil. He had a lot of evil coming at him. I will not fear evil. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. God is with me. He's for me. It changes everything, right? 
And this is why David says, in your presence, joy. Do you think David experienced that? And pleasures? Right? Why, why are we tempted? Because we're not flooded with the pleasures of God. He literally wants to satisfy you in every aspect of your being with his joy and his pleasure, with his peace, with his hope. He wants to strengthen you and fill you with confidence. How does this happen? Because you have peace with God, you can have peace in you. Therefore, justified, you have peace with God. And so you can say what David said. Amen? Amen. 